So I do invite you to open to John chapter 15. This is our last time, like I said, in verses 1 through 11, John 15. And today uh, is also uh, a special day because it's the first Sunday of the season of Lent. Now, many of you joined us this past week for Ash Wednesday services. We enter into this season together. Lent is a season of communal repentance and fasting, and it's meant to prepare us for Easter. If you did not grow up observing Lent, it works kind of like Advent. Advent is a season that prepares us for the celebration of Christmas. Lent is a season of anticipation. It's a season that prepares us for the celebration of Easter, and it does so through repentance and fasting. Because repentance reminds us that we need a Savior. Crucified and resurrected, repentance reminds us we need Easter. Fasting does the same thing. Fasting reminds us that we don't ultimately depend upon the things of this world, even food. No, we ultimately depend upon Christ. We need the resurrected Savior. We need Easter. Especially in this hour. It's the title of our Lenten series as we continue to walk through John 15 and 16 because I, I believe we especially need Lent and Easter in this hour. Because if we're honest, life looks a lot like Lent in the present, doesn't it? Like, like does not, we, we talk about repentance and fasting, constantly remind us of our need for a Savior. Does not the condition of our world daily remind us of our need for a Savior? Is life not like Lent? I mean, this week alone we were horrified again as we read headlines of another school shooting lives lost a community in florida rattled and we cry out how long O oh lord terror rages around our our globe refugees are displaced we're in the midst of one of the biggest humanitarian crises of history with the current refugee crisis there's children orphaned, and we cry out, how, how long, oh Lord, in this hour, life is like Lent, and that it reminds us daily, we, we need Jesus, we must depend upon Jesus, because in this hour, we still need the hope of Easter. In this hour, we don't lose heart because we still have the hope of Easter. We know that a day will come when Christ will return and Easter will have its final effect. He will bring the work he began on the cross. He will bring it to completion just like he said on the cross. When he said it is finished, he will bring that work to completion, redemption to completion. Christ will make all things new. So we can live confidently right now, faithfully right now, amidst this Lent-like world, we can live depending on Jesus. I want to know what that looks like. That's, that's what I want us to explore this Lenten season. I want us to learn what does it look like to live our lives depending upon Christ in this hour. 
That's precisely what Jesus is communicating to his disciples in John 15 and 16. He is teaching them how to live in light of the fact that his hour has arrived. If you remember, as we've journeyed all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has spoken about a coming hour, meaning the, the approaching of his death and his departure. He's going to die, he's going to rise, he's going to ascend. And now it's here. He announced it in chapter 13 and verse 1. The hour's here. And now that the hour has come for his death and departure, his disciples need to know how they're going to live in this hour without him physically present with them any longer. What does it look like then to depend upon him? And that's the same hour that we live in, is it not? Christ, not physically present here with us, yet we are still called to be his people, called to live depending upon him. How? What does that look like? And what we've discovered so far in John 15 is that Jesus uses three images Three images to show his disciples, including us, what it looks like to depend upon him in this hour. He shows us, remember, he shows us an, an image of himself as the vine, of his father as the vine dresser, and of us as the branches that abide in the vine. We are to live in this hour abiding in Christ, like a branch, abides in the vine. That's what we've been talking about for three weeks. We've been asking, what does that look like? What does it look like to abide in Christ? And to answer it, we've looked at each of these three images one at a time. So two weeks ago, we looked at the image of Christ as the vine. And what we saw, we don't have time to unpack this. If you weren't here, go back, listen to the podcast. But what we saw was that abiding in Christ looks like depending upon the Son's internal provision. Abiding looks like depending. And then last week, we looked at the Father as the vine dresser. And what we saw was that abiding in Christ looks like submitting to the Father's external pruning. Abiding looks like submitting. So basically, the sum of what we've seen so far is abiding looks like depending upon Jesus, And the Father rules over all the events of our lives, even the painful pruning ones, to increase our depending upon Jesus. You see the relationship there. Abiding looks like depending upon Jesus, and the Father does all that He does. He rules the world for you. To increase your depending upon Christ, there is not an ounce of evil that touches your life that isn't meant to increase your joy. Because it's meant to increase your abiding in Christ. So we've seen abiding looks like depending, and the Father does all he does to increase that depending. And all of that is great, but it still leaves me with one major unanswered question. How? If abiding is depending upon Christ, the Father is working all things to increase that dependence, my question is, how do I do that? How do I depend on Christ? Like, daily. Practically. I don't want to Christianese answer here. I want to know what it what it looks like. And this is where we need to look closely at the final image that Jesus gives us. The branches. 
through what Jesus tells us about these branches, I think that the whole picture that we've been seeing comes together and we see how, how we are to depend on Christ. And we see how, we see how the Father's pruning increases that dependence. So that's our question for the rest of this morning. In this hour, without Christ physically present, how do we live abiding, depending on him. I'm actually going to do something that's a little bit abnormal for me. Normally, I give you a question and we work our way through the text to arrive at an answer. I'm going to give you my answer up front. And I'm going to give you my answer up front because I want to unpack different pieces of it as we walk through the text. So, how do we abide in? How do we depend upon Christ? This is my answer. We act by the Spirit's effectual and affectional power. We're going to unpack it. I told you it's dense. We act by the Spirit's effectual, with an E, and affectional, with an A, power. We've already seen that a bite for all you note takers. Here's all three of my short, compact sentences for you in one thing, okay? So we've already seen that abiding in Christ looks like depending upon the Son's internal provision, submitting to the Father's external provision, and now acting by the Spirit's effectual and affectional power. Yeah, there's a lot of alliteration going on there. I'm sorry. It's a habit. I can't kick it. This is what it looks like to abide, to depend upon Christ. This is how we do it. We act by the Spirit's effectual and affectional power. Let's unpack three parts of that statement. The first one, we act by the Spirit. What does that mean? That's one of those Christian slang things that we throw around all the time. Goodbye, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's Great, awesome. What in the world does that look like? Practically. Think that we begin to unpack the answer in verses three and four, but in order for Jesus' argument to make sense, we need to go all the way back to verse one. So, starting in verse one, reading through verse three, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 3 is the strangest verse in this passage. Like you could take it out and it would seem like this whole thing would make a lot more sense. Jesus has just spoken about the Father pruning fruit bearing branches. These are, we've seen over the past few weeks, fruit bearing branches, those are true branches. True disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a transformed life. That's what fruit is. It's, it's the life of the vine being reproduced in the life of the branch. It's us being conformed to live like Christ, to look like Christ. The Holy Spirit's doing that in us, bearing that fruit out in our life. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's transforming us to bear that, that fruit and and we're told that the Father prunes these branches to bear more fruit. As soon as he says that, Jesus turns and looks at the disciples and declares, and you are already clean 
Where's the logical connection there? Things get a little bit easier when you see the text in its original Greek. Okay? The word for prune in verse 2, the father prunes, is kathare. The word for clean in verse 3 is katharoi. They have the same root, katharos, which basically means to clean. There's a word play going on here. If you think about it, this is what pruning is. In a way, it's, it's cleaning off the branches. It's cutting away what doesn't need to be there. So, to hear it a little bit easier, what we could say is that Jesus says the Father cleans every branch that bears fruit. And you are already clean. The Father prunes every branch that bears fruit. And you are already pruned. Great. What does that mean? Wordplay is helpful. What does it mean? I think in order to dig into it a little bit deeper, it helps for us to see something Jesus has already said this evening. Flip back to John chapter 13. He's already said something that sounds an awful lot like this. If you flip back to John chapter 13, you remember there Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And when he comes to the feet of Simon Peter, what does Peter do? He objects. Yeah, he's like, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And if you look, John 13 and verse 8, Jesus says to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, Peter, your feet, we're not united. We don't have a real relationship. We're not connected. You're not with me. So, Peter being Peter, swings that pendulum all the way to the other side. Lord, not just my feet. Like, wash my head. Wash my hands. I'll get a towel. We can get a bigger basin. Because I'm with you. Look at Jesus' words in John 13.10. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. That sounds really similar, doesn't it? And if you can remember back, what we saw right here in John 13, what Jesus is saying is the evidence that someone is completely bathed is that after they take a walk, all that needs to be cleansed is their feet. And Peter, the evidence that I have completely cleaned your heart is that you continue to let me daily cleanse you. 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The evidence that I have been cleansed, clean completely by Christ is that daily I want that forgiveness freshly applied to me because I've been walking around and my feet have gotten dirty. In other words, I still sin. And I want a fresh application. I'm not, not I want to be saved again. I don't need to be bathed again. I've already been bathed. I'm completely clean. But the evidence that I am saved, the evidence that I'm completely clean, is I've got this ongoing relationship with Christ where I'm confessing and repenting and He's forgiving. It's the evidence. It's not the same thing happening in John 15. 
you are pruned. You are cleaned. And the evidence of that reality is that you submit to the Father's pruning. Remember, we saw it's those that aren't true branches that reject the Father's pruning, that don't want it, that say this is a bad deal. They're false branches that don't bear fruit. But the true branch that bears fruit, that does have a relationship with God, that, that is connected to the vine, that is clean, that is pruned, says, come on. I may not like it, it may not feel good, but I will submit to your pruning because I know it's for my best. It's going to increase my dependence upon Christ, my abiding in Him for my, my joy. The evidence that you are pruned is that you submit to the Father's pruning. In other words, the evidence that you are a branch, a true branch, is that you act like a branch. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are a branch. You're cleaned. You're pruned by my word, by the gospel. So be a branch. Is that not precisely the connection that he communicates between verses 3 and 4? Look at it, verse 3 again. Already you are clean. In other words, you are a branch because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Already you're a branch, so abide, so act like a branch, so be a branch, be what you are. That is essential gospel logic, Shades. It is, it is the essence of all of the instruction of the New Testament. I'm making a really huge claim, people. The central ethical instruction for you as a Christian is this. Be who you are. It's essential gospel logic. It's all over the New Testament. Again and again and again. We are told to be what God made us. To be what we are. God has made you his child. That's your identity received. So live into it. Be his child. Live as his child. God has made you a new creation. So live as a new creation. God has united you to Christ. So live united to Christ. God has given you an identity that empowers you to live into that identity. Be who you are. I think... I think that Jesus emphasizes this point because all too often we use fleshly logic to twist gospel logic. We use fleshly thinking to twist gospel logic. I've met many, in 17 years of ministry, I've met many many people who are allergic to the commands in Scripture. Imperatives. Commands. They don't like them. They'd like to get rid of them. And in order to attempt that, what they do is they want to just talk about the indicatives. Now, if you haven't 
been in grammar school in just a little while, and an imperative is a command. An indicative is a statement of fact. It indicates something, right? So it's a simple statement of, of fact. And, and so what they, what they want to do is just talk about the indicatives. God has made you his child. That's an indicative. That's a statement of fact. That's something that's true about you. God has made you a new creation. Indicative. God has united you to Christ. All of those are indicatives. There's just one problem. If you read your Bible, the pattern of the Scripture is for the indicative to lead and the imperative to follow. In other words, you are a child, so live as a child. You're a new creation, so live as a new creation. And and so many people want to use the indicatives to eliminate the imperatives. This is what God says is true about me. This is my identity. Therefore, I am to do nothing. Paul fights against that mentality specifically all throughout the book of Romans. He's got people who are staring down the gospel grace of God, that God would save them by his grace, and they're like, I'm saved by grace, therefore my life doesn't have to change at all. It's all that what God does, my life doesn't have to move, he makes me his child, I can just keep on going and doing what I'm doing. That makes no sense. That is twisted fleshly logic, twisting gospel logic. Just imagine trying to pull that off in any other relationship. Holly, so I know that when we got married, I received this identity as your husband. That therefore then means I do not have to live as your husband. Because I am your husband no matter what I do. Right, right, you think this is going to go anywhere at all. No, that makes no sense. Yes, I have received the identity as her husband to live into it, to be who I am. I am her husband, so I need to be her husband. So many people want to use the indicatives of Scripture to eliminate the imperatives. They have no room to talk about striving in the Christian life, no room to talk about running the race, no room to talk about fighting the fight, no room to talk about pressing on. There's no room to talk about effort because in their mind, grace is opposed to effort. Shades. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning It's not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. You cannot earn the right to be the child of God. But when God makes you his child, by his grace, you are empowered to live as his child. Grace doesn't eliminate effort, it empowers it. The indicatives of Scripture do not eliminate the imperatives. They empower them. That's how it works in my relationship with Holly. I could try to live as her husband all I wanted to, but unless I had actually received that identity through a covenant relationship, pledging myself, it doesn't matter. No, the indicative, I am her husband, empowers me to live as her husband. This has massive implications for how we live. We are to be 
who God has created us to be. That's gospel logic, and it's the call of Christ to all his disciples in John 15, including us. You are already clean. You are already pruned. Don't twist that logic to say, well, then I don't need to submit to the Father's pruning. If I'm already a true branch, I don't need to depend on Christ. That makes no sense. If you are a branch, Jesus says, act like a branch. Abide. This this is the first thing we need to see, we must see, about how to abide. Namely, we act. We do something. My first two words, my sentence, right? We act. We're not passive here. We are empowered to act. That's the rest of the statement, right? We act by the Spirit. We act, but we're empowered to act. I get that from verse 4. Look at it again. Abide in me and I in you. You're going to be empowered to do this acting. I'm going to abide in you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Yes, we are active in our abiding, but not in our own power. In provided power. Abide in me and I in you. I'm going to provide all the power that you need for fruit bearing, for living as a branch. Depend on me. Keep on depending upon my power. I will be in you, providing all that you need. And, and Shades, if you can remember back to chapter 14, Jesus specifically told us how he would be with us and in us, empowering us. He said he would do it by the Spirit. That's why I say we act by the Spirit. He said it in John 14, 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, and throughout much of 16, Jesus is again going to be talking about the Holy Spirit as the one who empowers us to be who we are. Act like branches because we are branches. How do we abide? We act by the Spirit. Awesome. What does that look like? Let's keep pushing the question a little bit further. We act by the Spirit. What does that look like? This is where we need to zoom in on the second part of our key statement. We act in the Spirit's effectual. That's the part we're going to focus on right now. We act in the Spirit's, in the Spirit's effectual power. What does that mean? you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Ask whatever you wish. Greek word underlying wish right there can be translated as wish or will. We use it when we talk about the will of God. Your will is something that you want, you desire. Will or wish. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The Holy Spirit's power will be effectual for you. Now, 
Here's a verse that people love to rip out of context. People use this verse and others like it to basically turn the Holy Spirit into a genie and a lamp. I mean, it says, ask whatever I wish. We don't even have a limit here of three wishes. No wishing for more wishes. We just get unlimited wishes right here. Rub away on the Bible and wish. Have whatever I want. Name it. And claim it. And get it. Possession, success, relationships, health. Only a week ago, I ran across an article in the Washington Post where there is a massive nationwide televangelist telling people to name and claim protection against the flu. Don't take medication. Don't, don't do any preventative. For those of you out there that don't like medication and, and you're like all essential oils, yeah, she would poo-poo on the essential oils too, okay? Don't do anything. Name it. Ask whatever you wish, right? Have enough faith. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Shades, this verse does not turn the Holy Spirit into your personal genie. Far from it. Because we've got to understand these words in light of the words that surround it. Context is king. This statement is preceded by a condition and followed by a conclusion. And both shape how we understand the promise of the Spirit's effectual power. Okay, so first, look at it with me, the condition. If you abide in me, depend on me. So far, the name of claimant stuff sounds right. I'm going to depend on Jesus not to get that flu. If you abide in me, some of you aren't depending on Jesus. All the flu people out there with no faith, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just it's a joke. If you abide in me, depend on me, and my words abide in you. If you're depending on me, and that happens through depending upon his word. Jesus has already said this a couple of times in this gospel. The most explicit was in John 8 and verse 38. He said this, if you abide in my word, so over here in John 15, he's talking about abiding in him. That's virtually equated with John 8 by abiding in his word. And he talks about his word abiding in us, like he abides in us. His word plays a central role, we're going to see, in this whole abiding thing, us abiding in him. Him abiding in us. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Abide in me. Abide in my word. Depend on me. Depend on my word. You've got to start with my word abiding in you living in you, staying in you. Ask yourself that question. Does does this word, the word of Jesus, and we could call all of this the word of Jesus, does, does it abide in you? Does it live in, has it, has it gotten in what I mean by that is, is has it gotten into your heart and head so that it shapes the way you think? It, it renews your mind, as Romans 12, 2 says. It shapes the way you feel. It shapes your affections so that you love what God loves. You hate what God hates. You want what God wants. Does this word abide in you? Shape what you want and desire. Shape what you will and wish for. You see where this is going? 
If my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish, because what you wish will be shaped by this word. You'll want what he wants. Your goals will be his goals. Your will will be to see his will done. You'll pray an awfully lot like Jesus taught us to. My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's my wish. That's what I want. The hallowing of your name and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. That, that'll be my will and my, my wish. Is that your will and your wish? The desire of your heart does does his word abide in you and shape what you want and wish for? Shades, I would plead with us, myself included. I would, I would plead with us to let this word abide in us. It won't happen through one sermon a week, Shades. We depend upon this word. We, we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of, of God. We've got to imbibe this word. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says it. He says, eat this book. Get, get yourself a, a reading plan. All right? It's a big book. If you just sit down and flip open, you're not going to know where to start. Get a reading plan that tells you where to start. We've got some printed and available on the resource table in the back. There are tons of apps that have reading plans. There's online reading plans. So get yourself a reading plan and just go for it. Start Packing this word into your heart and head. Don't worry about whether or not you understand every single thing. You won't. I don't. At all. This, this book, it's a communal book. It's meant to be read, discussed, talked about, learned, understood in community. So in other words, don't just get a reading plan and go at this by yourself. Talk about what you're reading with somebody. Get the community group. Discuss the word. Pour the word into one another's lives. Hear from one another what each other are learning. Parents, pour it into your kids and try to field their questions. Like, you want to learn? Take that on for a hot minute. Students, pour it into your roommates and hear from them and receive from them. Get into this word and get into it in community. Don't worry about whether or not you understand everything. Just get after it. Don't worry about whether or not you keep up with the pace of your reading plan. If you have a reading plan and it has dates on it, wipe them out. Ignore them. And just keep going. If you forget to read for two months or six months, pick it back up and keep going. It's just as good. Most year-long reading plans take me two and a half years. Just, just keep Go, don't worry about keeping up with the pace. Worry about one thing. Worry about word. About this word. Abiding. Shaping what you want, desire, For if this word abides in you, then ask whatever you wish. For what you will wish and want will be in line with what God wishes and wants. It'll be for his will to be done and his will 
will be done for you. The Holy Spirit's power will be effectual for you by being effectual through you. I think that is what the conclusion of verse 8 shows us. That the Holy Spirit's power is effectual for you by being effectual through you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We follow Jesus' logic in this thought right here. He says, depend on me by letting my word live in you, shaping everything that you want. When that happens, what you will want will be the glory of God. That will become your heart's number one desire and prayer. You'll pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what I want. You glorified. So I ask for that. I pray for that. And when you do, Jesus' logic says, it will be done for you. The Holy Spirit will do that in your life by empowering you to bear the fruit of a transformed life. A life that shows you are a disciple of Jesus. You are a branch connected to the vine. You are receiving and reproducing the life of the vine. You couldn't do that on your own. Apart from the vine, no fruit is born. You can only do that through provided power. So therefore, God gets the glory because he's the one providing the power. And that's what you prayed for. For God to be glorified. Do you see how that, that works? Like, this is what it looks like to abide in Christ. We act in the Spirit's effectual power through this word. I'll try and shorten it. Through this word, the Spirit shapes my desire to be to glorify God. So I pray for him to empower me to do that. And I step out upon the promise that he said he will do that. And he does, and God is glorified. This is how we abide. We depend upon provided power through Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is how you live by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how it works. This is what it looks like practically. This reality is all over the New Testament. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do that. Work it out. For it is God who works in you, both will and work his good pleasure. In other words, you set out believing that God is all powerful. Yes. So he's glorified. 1 Peter 4.11, let the one who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You're going to step out to serve? Do so, not in your own power, but believing the Holy Spirit will provide the power so that you can do that to the glory of God in reliance upon Him. This is how the Apostle Paul lived his life. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul looks around at all of the other apostles and he says, I worked harder than all of them. Preaching, did it more. Writing scripture, did it more. I worked harder than all of them but it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Amen. This is yes. how we live abiding in 
Christ, the Word of God abides in us, shapes our desire to be for the glory of God. We pray for the Spirit to empower us to glorify God. We act believing His power will be effectual, and it is, and God is glorified. Practical example of this in my own life is what I'm doing right now at this moment. This, I aim to practice this as I preach every single week. In other words, my desire in preaching is for God to be glorified. I hope that that has been shaped by this word. My desire is for God to be glorified. So I pray for the Holy Spirit to provide the power. Because if I stand up here and preach in my own power, I get the glory. But if God provides the power, He gets the glory. So I pray using the words of Colossians 1.28 every single week. I pray this. Lord, I want to proclaim Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that I may present your people to you one day in the church in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. In other words, I step out to preach. I act. I, but, but as I do so, I do so in faith, believing that he will provide the promised power so that he gets the glory. That's how abiding works. This, this isn't just how I preach. This, isn't, this, this is how we parent. If you're a parent, like I don't know any other way to parent than on your knees, God, give me the power, the grace. And I wake up every morning and I step out of my bed believing that he's going to give me the power and the grace not to murder children. <laughs> the power and the grace to end the day with four because I began the day with four. doesn't matter what four. As long as I have four, that's success. Look, this is how we parent. This is how we live as spouses. This is how you live as a single. God, Provide me the power to live faithful in my singleness. And I step out believing he will provide that power so that he gets the glory. This is how we do our jobs. This is how we pursue recreation. This is how we manage our money or the lack thereof. This is how we live. Desiring to do all that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. So we pray, provide the power. Step out in faith, believing and trusting. He does provide the power and he gets the glory. How do we abide in Christ? We act by the Spirit's effectual power, but not just effectual. That language is a little too mechanical by itself. Which is why I want us to look at the third and final part of our consent. We act by the Spirit's affection. affection. Love, desire, want. We act by the Spirit's affectional power. And if you think about it, in light of what we've seen, this makes sense, right? Like I've been talking to us about how the Spirit works through the Word to shape our desires, our wants, our wishes, to shape our affections. We want what God wants. We love God's will. We want to do His will. Follow His commands. That's exactly what verses 9 and 10 say. Look at it. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. 
just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in His love. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus compares our relationship to Him to His relationship with His Father, and He's doing it here again. This is what He said about His relationship with the Father. The Father loves me, and I abide in that love. I live in it. I stay in it by keeping His commands. That does not sound right. Like, that hits my Protestant ear a little weird. Like, does that, does Jesus mean that He works hard at obeying in order to stay in the Father's love? Like, He's earning staying in the Father's love? No. We know that that can't be true in light of what He's already said in this passage alone. No, Jesus has told us why he obeys the Father. Right at the end of chapter 14, right before our passage began, if you look at 14 and verse 31, Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. I love the Father. I love everything about him. I love what he loves. I love what he does. And that love empowers obedience. I want the world to see that I love everything about the Father. So I don't reject any of His commands. I do them all. I I live in what He wills. I live in what He loves. I abide in His love. Do you see how that works? To, To reject the commands would be to reject His will, to reject what He loves. I'd no longer be abiding in His love. Our relationship with Christ works like this. If we reject his commands, his will, we're rejecting what he loves. We're not abiding in his love. But if we love what he loves, if if we love his will, if the Holy Spirit has been doing what we've been talking about, Using this word to shape our desires and our affection. And of course we will obey him and abide in his love. Our, our, the Holy Spirit has transformed our affections to, to want to do that. To empower our obedience. We love him, so we want to follow him. Go where he goes, do what he commands. Because we love him. Jesus said that explicitly again in John 14. John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. That's what will happen. You love me. You love everything about me and what I do and where I go and what I will. So you keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. In other words, you will act by the Spirit's affectional power. His power won't just be effectual in your life. No, it will be affectional. You will love what I love, and you will enjoy what I enjoy. Is that not precisely where Christ ends in verse 11? Look at it. These things I have spoken to you, all this abiding, all of these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Everything that I've said to you about abiding has this ultimate goal, that my joy be in you. That begs the question, what is Jesus' joy? What does he love? Yes, we just read it. Thank you, Robert. Just a moment ago in John 14, 31. He loves the Father, so he does what the Father commands. 
Namely, right there in 14 and verse 31, he's talking about going to the cross. In John 10, he said, this charge I received from the Father. In 1431, he says, I love my Father. I'm going to obey his commands. That's what I'm about to do. I'm about to go to the cross. I, I think that the beginning of Jesus' prayer in John 17 helps us out right here. Jesus says, I love the Father. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to go to the blind. John 17, verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. This is what Jesus loves. This is why he obeys the command. This is why he's going to the cross. Jesus loves to glorify the Father. Glorify me, take me to the cross, so that the Son may glorify you. This is why he does everything that he does. All throughout the Gospel of John is to glorify the Father. It's why he goes to the cross, because he loves to glorify the Father. Dare we say that that is Jesus' joy? Hebrews 12 and verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What joy? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. This is the ultimate reason that Jesus says he's going to the cross. He's obeying his Father because he loves him. He wants to see him glorified. That is his joy. The ultimate joy of Jesus is the glory of God. And all these things about abiding that Jesus has spoken to us, he says, I've spoken it to you so that my joy, the joy of glorifying God, so that my joy may be in you. He's the vine. We are a branch. Coming through that connection is a transformation of our joy. We, we are not born enjoying the glory of God. We are born enjoying the glory of self Jesus says here is the end, ultimate goal of, of abiding. That my joy may be in you. That you will enjoy what I enjoy. The glory of God. An infinite glory that can bring infinite joy. Is that not what he says? So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's the aim of my life. Glorifying God. That's what we want more than. That's why I'll submit to the Father's pruning. That's why I'll depend upon Christ. Because I want to glorify God. That is our joy. That's what happens to us when we abide. By virtue of the fact that my kids live in my house. I'll tell you this story and I'll close. By virtue of the fact that my kids live in my house, they abide there. They cannot help but have some of my joy poured into them. They abide with me. Not quite the same, but you get what I'm going for. They can't help but enjoy some of the things that I enjoy. All of you know all too well that I'm a Star Wars fan, so we are Star Wars fans at my house. I kid you not, we're trying to get it on video. There are witnesses to Kid you not, Asher, who isn't even two, and can barely talk, that kid hums the Imperial March. If you're unfamiliar with Star Wars, just think Darth Vader's theme song, basically. He, he hums it. 
And the, the best part is that he's used different syllables to do it, like, you know, da, 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 or bum, 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 or something like that. But he eventually settled on one. And so now it's always ma, 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 ma. So all the other kids and myself, we joke about how it's Holly's theme song. But the point, the point is that my joy has been poured into him, and my joy has become his joy. And in an even greater way, when, when we abide in Christ, it results in his joy being poured into us, so his joy becomes our joy. And that joy is Through abiding, the triune God is working to make that joy full. That's what he said. I've spoken these things to you, that my joy may be in you. I want you to understand abiding, my work, the Father's work, the Spirit's work. I want you to understand what we, the triune God, are doing so that your life may bear fruit to the glory of God. Isn't that what verse 8 says? You're going to abide in my word. My word's going to abide in you for this. You're going to pray for this. We're going to empower you for this, for fruit bearing to the glory of God. Why? Because that has become your joy, and I want your joy to be full. So depend upon me to glorify God and make your joy full. Let the Father prune, submit to his pruning, no matter how painful, because it will increase your depending and increase your fruit bearing to my glory to make your joy full and act. Oh, shade, step out in faith and act in the effectual and affectional power of the Holy Spirit to live a life glorifying God and to the fullness of your joy. And one day you will stand fully before him and your joy will be fully complete. Psalm 1611 will be fulfilled in your life. Which says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because in that day and on that day we will abide perfect. This is how we live, depending upon Christ, in this 